Well, good evening again. Tonight we are jumping back into the Psalms in this mini-series in August called The Songbook of God's People that we've hit on in years past in the middle of the summer. And we are uh, not too creatively just plodding through Psalm 31 two weeks ago, Psalm 32 last week, and then tonight Psalm 33. Psalm 32 ends like this. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 33 begins like this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Because of this connection between the end of Psalm 32, which is a reflection on an individual's encounter with the grace of God, and Psalm 33, beginning, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Many scholars have linked Psalm 32 and Psalm 33, saying in some ways that Psalm 33 is a response, an answer to the the call of Psalm 32, to rejoice, to shout for joy in the Lord. Essentially, the psalmist says, I'm calling you to a life of joyful praise. And that is our topic for tonight, a life of joyful praise. Now, in parenting, uh, one of the things that we'll often say to our kids, I have one right here to keep me honest, uh, is um, that when we talk about obedience, we say, well, no, it's, it's to do what you're told, when you're told, and then we always add this one, and with a good attitude. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, you know, yeah, you need to have a good attitude. It's just kind of this command, um, have a good attitude. And sometimes I think we can interact with the psalm's command to worship and to praise God in a similar fashion. You know, it's like, yeah, praise him and you better do it. Um, and uh, thankfully, the psalmist doesn't just leave us without explanation for why he calls us to this life of praise. And that's what I want us to look at together tonight. Um, the explanation for this life of joyful praise that the psalmist calls us to. Now, before I go any further, let me speak to a couple of, of different groups that may be here. One is if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been walking with him for some time, you may hear this kind of, oh, a call to, uh, to, to joyful praise is something that um, strikes you as, as a good idea, uh, perhaps something that you've actually experienced much of, in, of late in your life. You may also hear it and think, well, my life doesn't really reflect a heart of joyful praise right now. There's just too much stress. There's too much burdensome stuff going on in my life. There's just too much to do. Um, or I'm just too down right now to have a heart of joyful praise. And I want you to, to listen tonight. I want you to, to, to sink into these things. The goal, obviously, in coming to Psalm 33 is that we'd walk away with some ways of actually pursuing a life of joyful praise. And I, I believe wholeheartedly that this is ultimately what God longs for for you if you follow him, if you belong to his family and for me and for this community is that we would be a place of joyful praise. So if that's not where you are at the moment, I I hope that you can walk away with some things um, to reflect on and to grow deeper in this this week. Now to another group of you who might say, you know, I'm, I'm here because I just sort of randomly came or I've got some questions about Jesus or, you know, I'm not really even sure about this God thing. You might be thinking, what is praise and who is God? Um, and, and frankly, what does it have to do with my life? And, and I would encourage you to, to listen in on what we're talking through here this evening because my, my case for all of you is that a life of joyful praise or a, a heart of joyful praise is ultimately what we were made for. 
So whatever category you would put yourself in as you walked in here tonight, I would say that this is actually what what you and I were made for. It's something that is possible for us, that we have a capacity for in our lives. In fact, I would put to you that any time you've ever felt a sense of transcendence, um, for me, often that will come in the mountains. Most of you know I have a history in the mountains, and I can remember distinctly climbing over certain ridges in in the Rockies of Colorado and just being overwhelmed with the sight of what, what I saw in front of me. Maybe it's at the birth of a baby or at your wedding day. Those kinds of emotions that are triggered in those moments, I would put to you are a part of this uh, capacity that God has put in you to live a life of joyful praise to a God who made you. And I would ultimately say that this is what we want deeply. Even if it sounds kind of boring and if you imagine harps and clouds and things like that that don't sound all that intriguing at all and I don't find them to be that intriguing either, that this kind of engaged life of joyful praise is ultimately what we want. It's what we long for, ultimately. All right, so that's my claim. I hope that will come to be clear as we jump into this. So what's the basis then for the psalmist's call for us to live a life of joyful praise? The first thing to say, it's, it's a revelation of the character of God. A revelation of God's character. Verses 4 and 5. If you've got your Bible, open it up. Um, if you don't, I'll do my best to read some of these things out again. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The first thing that he reveals about the character of God is his goodness. He uses words like upright, faithfulness, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is about the character of the God that we proclaim and serve. This is about his heart, his nature, that there's no duplicity in him, that there's no, there's no shadows in him, there's, there's nothing to be mistrusted about him, but he's, he's perfectly and wholly good. So this is where he begins, and then he moves on to this next thing. He says, the power of God. So it's not just the character and the nature of God, but it's the power of God, verses 6 through 9, where he talks about, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. All that you see around you, this was brought into being. This is not just the kind of generic scientific laws of nature that seem to kind of be working and, and are distant and removed. This is the work, the handiwork, as we sang in that song, Indescribable, Uncontainable, You Place the Stars in the Sky and You Know Them by Name. This is the handiwork of a God who, who made these things just by the word of his mouth. As we read in Genesis 1 as well. He spoke them into being. This God is powerful. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, not only is he good and faithful and just, not only is he powerful, but he's completely sovereign over this world. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. He's guiding over history. We look at the rise and fall of nations. We look at the, you know, the change of human history. And we call it what? Political science. Or international relations. Something that we can manage, get to know and study. Something that's the trajectory of which is brought about by armies and kings and, and, and governments. The perspective that the psalmist is bringing to us in calling us to a life of joyful praise is actually to see the providence of God governing sustaining and directing his world 
and all of the nations within it. He's active and he's engaged and he's working. So he's good, he's powerful, he's completely sovereign. And then verse 12 begins to transition this into something that means more perhaps for us. He says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That is, this God who is good and righteous and faithful and powerful and sovereign. Blessed are those, happy are those for whom this God is their Lord. This Lord is their God. So it's not just that he's out there somewhere, but that there's a unique and special relationship between you and this great being who made everything that you see and who directs all of world human history. And that then transitions into the second part of the psalm, where essentially the psalmist says, you know, this powerful God, this great God, this God that's at the center of the universe is actually for you. He's actually on your side. He's rooting you on. He's breathing life into your being. He says first that he sees everything. This is the second part. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees, he looks out and he sees everything. And it says that he made, he formed, he fashions the hearts of them all, of everyone out in the world. And he observes all their deeds. And then it goes on, the psalmist goes on to say that he is the deliverer and the rescuer. Behold, verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Those who have entrusted themselves to this one, that's what it means to fear him or to hope or to yearn for his steadfast love. This God is employed in delivering you and rescuing you and being at your side. That's contrasted then in verses 16 and 17 with those, instead of entrusting themselves to the Lord, who kind of seek to provide a foundation for their life on their own. The king is not saved by his great army, verse 16. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue Those who try to rescue themselves ultimately find themselves in a place of of real danger, of of a slippery slope, unable to get traction or foothold in the world around them. On the other hand, those who who fear him and those who yearn and hope for his steadfast love find that God is there to deliver them, to rescue them, that all of this great power and sovereignty is deployed in their interest, in your interest and in my interest. To be our rescuer. Remember the righteous from last week. The righteous are not the perfectly good. Those who have no issues with sin and trouble and trial in their lives. In fact the lives of the righteous as we saw last week. Are permeated by sin and its consequences. In an everyday sense. In their their day to day experience. But what defines the righteous or the upright. Those for whom God's strength and power and steadfast love is deployed is actually this dependence upon the grace and the mercy of God. Those are the righteous on whose side God rests and God works. The psalm then ends with this call to trust, to complete trust in the Lord. He says, "Our our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him. 
because we trust in his holy name. And then with a prayer, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we yearn for or hope for you. Signifying that not all is perhaps well, that there's a hope, there's a celebration in the life of joyful praise today, that God does rule, that he is sovereign, but also there's a a forward-looking nature to this, of crying out for God's steadfast love to be upon us, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done, as Jesus taught us to pray, on earth as it is in heaven. So, where are we at this point? And then I want to get practical. Essentially, the psalmist calls us to a life of joyful praise. That's, that's the call. And he roots that life of joyful praise. And the basis of his call is in the person, the nature, the character of the God that made heaven and earth by a word. Whose power and resources and love are deployed for you, his people, who entrust your lives to him. This is This is the impetus, the fuel, the logic behind this call to a life of praise. So let me give a few keys then from all of this for us to focus on this week in thinking about how can I live a life of joyful praise as the psalmist calls me to in Psalm 33. And these are things that I want you to to think through, to wrestle through throughout this week. Keys here from the psalm. First, God is not incapable but he is powerful. How much do you wrestle with this one in your life on a day-to-day basis? Do you believe that God has the power to rescue you, to deliver you? Do you believe that God has the power to heal you, to meet you in your place of need? Do you believe that God has the power to influence your circumstances in ways that you long to see him work? Or have you perhaps become jaded after years of unanswered prayers or unfulfilled hopes? And that jadedness then breaking down this heart of joyful praise. God is powerful. He's not incapable. A second principle arising out of Psalm 33. God is not distant from this world or from my life. But he's involved And sovereignly directing not only this world, but my circumstances as well. We quickly sometimes fall into this habit of thinking of God as a distant uncle or cousin. You know, that we might hear from once a year with platitudes that kind of are supposed to be spoken in family relations. When actually God is far more like an intimate father. Even more so. Who wants to know you. Who's present with you who's not present as a passive just bystander counselor that's waiting for you to walk into his office to share with him your issues and your troubles, but who's present with you as an active warrior, lover, friend, at your side, working in your life. God is not distant. His throne room is not disconnected from this world, this nation, or your particular circumstances in your life. He's near. And he's involved. A third thing. God is not ignorant. He knows. It says he fashions the hearts of them all. And observes all their deeds. Do you wonder sometimes if God knows what you're walking through? Do you sometimes feel and get stuck into a place where God's absence is more powerful to you than his presence? 
And that's a perfectly legitimate place, biblically speaking, for you to be. Rest assured that God knows you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you're afraid of right now. He knows what you're overwhelmed by. He knows what you're deeply frustrated by. He knows your deepest hopes and longings. Your dreams. He knows you. God is not duplicitous. Psalm 33 would tell us, God is not duplicitous. God is good, right, true, faithful. In other words, God is deeply trustworthy. Do you wrestle sometimes with God's intentions in your life? Have you ever shaken your fist at God and asked God, why is it that you're destroying me? Keeping these good things from me. Let Psalm 33 sink in deeply this week and assure you that God is faithful and righteous, upright, and full of steadfast love for you. Loyal, deeply loyal to you. Passionately pursuing life for you. God is not neutral or apathetic. That kind of goes with the distant one. Sometimes we feel like God perhaps is is just kind of hanging out. But Psalm 33 says no. He's passionately, passionately for us. Deploying his strength and power for our lives and for life in us. Note one of the things then that's absent from Psalm 33 that roots a life of joyful praise. Everything that I just shared with you, everything that kind of arises out of this psalm is about what? About who? It's about God. What's absent is your circumstances. Which is probably the most common place from which we derive our sense of joy or happiness. I would put to you that your circumstances are defined first and foremost by God. And I don't mean by what God has put you in here, but by God in himself, who indwells you, who surrounds you, who sings over you, who delights in you as his children. If you doubt these things, and we all do at times, if you kind of honestly assess your life over the last five, six months, and say, you know, in terms of joyful praise, that hasn't really been what's defined me. Then I want to end by taking us to the one place where each of these things that I've just pulled out of Psalm 33 find their fulfillment and their most clear representation in our world today. Or I should say in our world. Period. It's in the cross. In the cross of Jesus. Which I would say to you, there's no other place to meditate, to mull over, to chew on, that spurs a life of joyful praise than the cross. There we see the power of God. You know, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those who are being saved, Christ, the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. There at the cross, the power of God was unleashed against all the forces of death, sin, and evil. Your ultimate enemy was undone and destroyed in the cross. If you struggle thinking God is distant, at the cross you know, in Jesus you know, that God is not a distant father or being. God has come near. God has come to dwell among his people. God knows, therefore, the third thing, God knows his people because he's come among us, he's come near, and he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be tried and to be tempted. This is what Hebrews says. This is why he's a faithful and merciful high priest because he's come to be one of us and he suffered temptations and trials just like you and I have. He knows. If ever you doubt the goodness of God, Or the fact that God is for you. Look at the cross. Where you'll see the extent of his goodness. Overcoming evil with good. Where you'll see the extent of his love for you. You'll you'll see the extent of of his concern for you. By taking upon himself the brunt of our deepest problems. In the person of his son. So that you might go free. Be alive, be made well, be healed, be be full. The cross shows us more than anything else what verse 5 of Psalm 33 says, that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In the cross we see the love of God manifest and displayed so powerfully and so wonderfully. This love that fills all of the earth, that is behind the universe that is behind all of human history, and that is behind yours and my personal experience. This love, which is the exercise, the ultimate exercise of the power of God that spoke and it came to be. A power that's exercised not in forcibly causing conformity to his will, but that's exercised in the voluntary self-sacrificial sufferings of love for another. In order not to to force compliance, but to compel compliance by a deep and radical expression of being for you, even as you were against him. This, I would put to you, this love that the psalmist declares fills the whole world, this love, this is what we were made for. This is what we have a capacity to receive in the human heart. This is ultimately what we long for. And this freely given love, this steadfast love, this faithfulness of God, this is what produces a life ultimately of joyful praise. And this is what God is inviting you and me into. This is what I want us to reflect on this week. The closeness, the power, the goodness, the nearness the advocacy, the steadfast love of God for you and for me. Amen.